Welcome to Let's Talk Loyalty, an industry podcast for loyalty marketing professionals. I'm your host, Paula Thomas, and if you work in loyalty marketing, join me every week to learn the latest ideas from loyalty specialists around the world. Welcome to episode 82 of Let's Talk Loyalty. Today, I am chatting to Everett DeBoer, Managing Partner at OnPoint Loyalty, a global consulting and investment firm focused exclusively on the airline loyalty space. In today's discussion, Everett talks us through a white paper and some fascinating research that his company published in January 2020, entitled The Top 100 Most Valuable Airline Programs. And it was really fascinating to get a sense of some of the valuations of these loyalty programs. In addition to that report, we chat through all of the various changes that have happened as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic and how, in some ways, these have really elevated airline loyalty programs, which are increasingly becoming more recognised for their extraordinary financial power. So, Everett DeBoer, welcome to Let's Talk Loyalty. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Wonderful. And I should also wish you happy new lunar year. I believe that has just happened there where you're based in Singapore. That's right. We just kicked off the start of the the year of the ox and I hope it's going to be a better year than last year. Wonderful, Everett. Absolutely. I think everybody shares your intention. So listen to me. I'm sure plenty of our listeners are very familiar with the work that you do in On Point Loyalty. Um, Incredible amount of research and white papers and reports that we're going to talk about today. So um, do you want to, first of all, tell me uh, your, I suppose, answer to my favorite uh, opening question, which is what is your favorite loyalty statistic? Yeah, sure. Um, and I think it's it's a great question because, uh, well, for many reasons, um, I think there's a lot of interesting statistics out there. And 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 for some, um, I genuinely believe that people do not really appreciate them or know them. Um, and I, I gave your question some thought. And I, what I would like to do is to share actually three sort of data points with you. Because I think it, it paints a very telling picture of, of loyalty, particularly in the airline um, context. So the, the first kind of statistic is that, you know, many people traditionally think of awards in a loyalty program as free, as in they don't generate any revenue for the airline. And as a result, um, they are reluctant to open up inventory, so airline seats in the case of an airline because they feel that you're basically foregoing revenue. I think the interesting point behind it is actually that if you consider that airlines are selling those miles or points to partners, you can do a quick math. And the math is is pretty straightforward. So assume that a member would, on average, um, in the U.S., I'm taking the U.S. just make an easy example. In the U.S., a member would redeem 25,000 miles if you then look at the associated revenue for that ticket, that so-called free ticket, the airline could have sold those 25,000 miles at maybe, let's take a conservative approach, a penny and a half, penny and a half each. That means that that free ticket would have generated $375 in revenue. If you then fact, yeah, it's, it's, it's material. And if you then factor in breakage, again, conservative, conservative rate of between 10 to 15%, 
it means that a free ticket is actually yielding more than $400. Now, if you compare that with the average fare of domestic travel in the US, uh, war travel is actually uh, yield accretive. In other words, selling a, a seat in 25,000 25, mile increments delivers a greater yield than selling the seat, uh, the seat through you know, uh, other channels. And then, of course, on top of that, you can factor in uh, things like uh, lower distribution cost, uh, less commission, uh, nah, and a bunch of other things. And it just you, you, you start to see a completely different picture in terms of the notion that you know, award travel is always free. As a matter of fact, award travel can actually be yield accretive for the airline. My goodness. I think you've just blown my mind, Everett. <laughs> um, you know, because I think I have a very good um, respect for the profitability of airline loyalty programs. And I want to credit our friends in Loyalty Magazine, actually, in the UK. They did um, run many um, excellent loyalty conferences over the years. And I remember specifically hearing that loyalty programs for many of the world's largest airlines are more profitable than the airline itself. So, um, so that that's at the overall level. But for you to, to make that incredible point there about uh, the level of yield that's being generated by these free seats is unbelievable. Yeah, and I think you know it's it's a very simple illustration uh, of of the financial power of these programs. And then if you take it to the next level. It, if you look at it on an aggregate level, it actually means that the loyalty program can, um, you know, it's, it, it can be more profitable than your core transportation business, meaning that selling the business of selling miles to partners can generate not only a higher profit margin, but it also offers, you know, um, very different business characteristics because a loyalty business inherently is a very different business from running an airline. So if you put those two together, all of a sudden, you know, you're sitting on your own little, very profitable, controllable business, whereas the airline business, you know, traditionally airlines, they struggle to meet the weighted average cost of capital. It's, it's an incredibly difficult business to run with, you know, high uh, peaks with very low troughs as well. So um, yeah, the loyalty business um, offers a very uh, clear departure from that. Uh, and as a result of that, it, it also means that if you look at, uh, especially the big US airlines, you know, a material part of their profit comes from the loyalty program. And in some cases, you know, more than 50% of the profit generated by the airline comes yeah. from the loyalty program. And that's kind yeah. of my segue into, the, into my final uh, point statistic yeah. and there's actually yeah. two the first one is so you know keep in the back of your mind that these loyalty programs are very profitable uh, they're they're punching above their weight uh, you can say yeah but that's mm -hmm. not reflected at all in what the airlines traditionally have put out so take any of the investor uh, relations disclosures by big u.s carriers and you mm. will see you know 150 slides where they talk about uh, fleet, uh, routes, destinations, new seats, IFE, catering, um, yeah, yeah. all that stuff. And, yeah. you know, at best, a handful of slides on their loyalty program because it's sort of yeah. taken as table stake um, and it doesn't really, in my opinion, of course, I'm biased, mm -hmm. but it doesn't really yeah. get the attention it deserves. <laughs> and the yes. last sort of, you know, little anecdotal data point there, in 2013, IATA, that we all know as the sort of the airline, you know, overriding uh, yeah. association, Industry body. 
Yeah. yeah, exactly. They commissioned the report from a prestigious management consulting company, McKinsey, about profitability in the airline industry. And basically, the message was the profitability is not very good. And in this 52-page mm. report, there was exactly zero mentions of loyalty programs. Oh, my and goodness. I say it in a slightly you know, facetious yeah. way, but... <laughs> I think my I think by now my point hopefully is clear that these programs are very yeah. strong and profitable and they offer lots of upside and historically they I don't think they got the attention that they uh, that they should deserve. Absolutely. Well, you make the point beautifully, Everett. And I think I mentioned to you last time we spoke that I heard a shocking statistic, which again, I think repeats exactly what happened, obviously, in 2013. And I remember seeing Willie Walsh, who was then the chief executive of Aer Lingus, subsequently became the chief executive of British Airways. And I now know is with IAG. I think his role is currently chairman. But Willie Walsh literally said in 100 years of aviation, the airline industry had made a loss. So I think that's, again, neglecting the, the power, the financial power of the loyalty program, even within Aer Lingus. And I think you're on a mission to, to prove to everybody the incredible asset that's available literally just below the surface that we need to leverage. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And uh, Mr. Mr. Walsh, I think, is uh, set to become the new uh, uh, CEO or chairman of IATA. So hopefully wow. there will be an opportunity yeah. for him. To say, yeah. well, industry, yes, of course, yeah. you know, IATA needs to do what it needs to do with all the certification yeah. and, and safety and all the operational stuff. But perhaps there's yeah. an angle as well to educate the airlines on the potential yeah. gold mine that they're sitting on. Because I think, you know, probably yeah. for tier one carriers, they're sort of capitalizing on it now. And certainly with everything that has happened last year, there is yes. a big mind mindset, uh, mind mindset shift. Um, sure. Uh, but for tier two and tier three carriers, it, it is still, uh, yeah, it's not getting the attention okay. it deserves. Yeah. Okay. So let's just go back 12 months, uh, maybe 12 and a half months, actually, uh, Everett, because you released an extraordinary piece of work, which was the first piece of yours that I read. And for listeners, it's entitled The Top 100 Most Valuable Airline Loyalty Programs, published in January 2020. And the second edition of this particular report, because you had done one previously in 2017. And there's some extraordinary insights, Everett, in terms of literally the valuations, again, led mainly at the moment by the US airlines. So let me just um, pull some of the top figures out for listeners. And again, I know this report is available on your website, which is onpointloyalty.com. So I'm sure there's plenty of people will want to read it. So just to give people an example of this goldmine that you're referring to, the top one is currently or was currently, I should use the past tense for this. So the SkyMiles program from Delta Airlines last January 2020 valued in round figures at almost 26 billion dollars, followed in second place by AA Advantage by American Airlines, again, $23 billion. And in third place, the Mileage Plus program from United Airlines, worth just over $20 billion. These are extraordinary figures, Everett. Yeah, they are. <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> um, at the same time, yes, they're absolutely extraordinary figures. Uh, I, I always also say that, you know, don't I don't think that we've got the, you know, the scientifically exact number necessarily of right. Of course. It is, yeah. it is directional. What we're saying is 
listen, there yes. is tremendous value in these programs, we think. Yeah. And we've yeah. gone through this, you know, big exercises where we basically collect data on 150 airlines. We collect more than 50 data points per airline. And it basically cuts across airline statistics, the program statistics, uh, the country, the, 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 the primary country, uh, operating country statistics. And we essentially pour that into our model. And then the model generates um, a pro forma uh, PNL. So we basically project what do we think the business would look like if you were to run it as a, as a separate business. And to that, then ultimately you can apply a certain valuation multiple. And of course, you know, the multiple is influenced by a number of factors, including again, you know, the growth profile of the airline and its stability and its uh, level of indebtedness and things like that. But ultimately, yeah, uh, yes, you get you get a number on the valuation of the program. And it, it is material um, for these big yeah. airlines. Of course, it's it's very large. But even yeah. for you know the top, let's say the top 50 airlines, it is in many cases it is it is a material number. And I think it's really one of the reasons why we published the report is really to sort of try and open the eyes of the of the various yeah. stakeholders and say, listen, there is a potential yeah. opportunity here, and we just don't think that in many cases it's being done, you know, justice by the level of attention and investment and sort of um, yeah. overall standing it has in the industry. Absolutely. And obviously a huge amount changed very quickly after you published that, effort. And I think what it did first and foremost was uh, reaffirm, again, the direction and the estimated values of these programs. And I think what you shared with me is um, United Airlines seems to have, I think you said, cracked the code in terms of leveraging their loyalty program to to essentially raise funds to, to, to continue operating through the pandemic. So I'd love for you to explain to me and all of the listeners what exactly happened throughout 2020, particularly with the U.S. airlines and leveraging their loyalty programs as assets. Yeah, that's a, also a good question. I so let me just take you back historically what airlines have done in the past to to sort of generate capital from their programs there's there's a kind of there's a number of different ways you can do it traditionally airlines have or programs have used the approach of pre-selling miles to partners it basically in okay. an effort to generate liquidity they pre-sell the miles to partners and that generates cash in the door and that's that's good but yeah. at the same time it can lead to yield erosion because typically if you do large pre-purchase yeah. deals Whoever yeah. is buying them, typically the financial services partner, will negotiate yeah. uh, a reduction on the on the price per mile. Of course. The, the second sort of way that has been done in the past is where the airline has set up the program as a standalone company, and they basically sold you know a part or the whole of the company to external investors. Of course, the famous example is Aeroplan that was sold by yeah. Air Canada Enterprises in 2005 uh, through yeah. an IPO, through multiple tranches, and actually, eventually, they sold off the whole thing. Um, mm. And that was followed by a number of other divestitures, where it's essentially an equity carve-out, whereby the shareholder carves out a piece of the business and, and, and sells that to a uh, typically strategic or a financial investor, or in some cases, goes for an IPO. That is, you know, it's also good because it raises capital, uh, but at the same time, if you sell something, you know it's gone. You've sold it, so uh, you you lose that piece of equity, and and with that may come, you know, uh, of course, if you bring in different shareholders, they also want something to say. So it, it becomes a more complex operating environment. I think what United has done 
is is very innovative in the sense that so they didn't want to go for the big pre-sale. They didn't want to go for an equity carve-out, but they still obviously had their cash needs they needed to meet. I I, I think that they you know they obviously airlines are very familiar with leveraging all sorts of assets like you know aircraft and, and gates and, and traffic rights and everything else. I think in the case of United, um, I think they found that the value that they could get from that was was limited. So they were sort of on the lookout for uh, alternative ways to, to meet their financing needs. And they, they actually came up with a structure that allowed them to raise capital by collateralizing the future cash flows of their loyalty program. So the loyalty program sells miles to, to partners, uh, predominantly the financial services partners. That is a very stable and robust income stream. Um, so United effectively was able to come up with a structure. And I think with the help of the the, the people at Goldman Sachs to come up with a structure that allows them to basically raise uh, the capital by collateralizing uh, essentially the cash flows and some of the IP in the program. And I think it is very interesting for, well, for a number of reasons. One is that it is the first time that this model has been used. So they maintain the full ownership in the program. At the same time, they get the, 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 the capital they need. And secondly, what is very interesting is that when you borrow money, you have to pay interest. If the airline goes to the capital debt markets, it pays a certain price, depending on the profile of the airline. What United and the other carriers were able to do is by leveraging their loyalty program or making the loyalty program company as the entity that went to the market, they were able to realize a, a risk discount of between 200 and 300 basis points. In other words, going through the loyalty program to issue bonds or borrow money is, is, is a far more effective way of raising capital rather than using the airline. So, and again, you know, this is one of those little angles that I don't think that airlines have realized traditionally, uh, because traditionally it's just, you know, you're on the program, you sell the miles, it's a nice revenue stream, you take it to profit as much as possible, it helps you to run the airline, and that's about it. I think now we're really on the cusp of airlines looking at it and saying, well, hang on, I need to take one or two steps back and look at the bigger picture and, and you know, get my head around what the program can do, not only just from generating cash from selling miles, but also some of the characteristics of that business allow me to do things you know, in a smarter way, in a different way. And I think that, that realization has really sunk in in the industry. And you know, United was followed by, by Delta and Spirit a few months later. Uh, Delta actually did the largest ever capital uh, debt market transaction for an air, for airlines ever uh, by raising uh, $9 billion, uh, against those more favorable terms. Yeah, so I think, you know, of course, you know, these are large programs or very large programs. Uh, the Delta-American Express relationship is, is well, it's, it's spectacular, you know, for reasons for its size, for its duration, for its uh, contractor. It's, it's unbelievable. Uh, you know, I think that at some point they were predicting that the revenues from uh, the American Express Delta co-brand card were going to reach $7 billion, which effectively is more close to you know, the, the passenger revenues of EasyJet or Etihad. So wow. the co-brand yeah. itself generates as My much God. money yeah. as, a, as an <laughs> entire airline would. It's, it's unbelievable. Wow. Wow. It's very exciting, Everett. I have to say, I think you've chosen your career well to focus in this sector. 
Um, I actually did want to ask you, and, and you mentioned EasyJet there, Everett, and I see, um, you know, I know they do have an invitation-only loyalty program. And, you know, and maybe it's just a, a feature of um, the fact, as you said, that this is only sinking in for airlines now. But, you know, where I come from, we have a very well-known uh, low-cost carrier uh, called Ryanair, who don't yet have, um, you know, a traditional loyalty program. I know they have lots of different models. Um, but would you see that that all airlines, even those that are currently just focused on the core business, will start to build these as, as new types of assets? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, actually, I'm a bit surprised um, or maybe baffled is a better word. That Good. It's not just me. Yeah. <laughs> those three. <laughs> so let's go through them one by one. So EasyJet, yeah. you know, in my view, a program that is by invitation only, I, I, I don't get that. I, I totally don't yeah. get that. I think they're, yeah. they're leaving a huge amount of money on the table by doing that, to be honest. And, and, okay. and quite frankly, the same goes for Wissair and Ryanair. And mm. I think with some of these LCCs, there is this built-in, yeah, let's call it the prejudice, that says airline loyalty programs, that is for big, fat, legacy full service carriers because our loyalty program is low price and as a matter of fact um, this is what tony fernandez the, the ceo and chairman of the AirAsia group used to say we don't need loyalty low price is our loyalty uh, model and he's come 180 degrees on that because realizing well two things primarily Number one is that the loyalty program can generate incremental and accretive value for the business. In other words, the example I gave earlier on, where you sell miles or points, whatever you want to call it, to partners, can be a very rich and attractive distribution channel, uh, rather than always just using the sledgehammer of low prices. And secondly, taking this business and building it into a sort of a data-driven um, a very customer analytics focused business where you can layer on additional you know, new business ventures around mobile, around wallet with fintech it is, it is potentially a, a huge opportunity so, and, and you see that you know, AirAsia has embraced it um, if you look at some of the, the, the LCCs in South America they have embraced it Spirit in the US Southwest has a, a long-standing, successful program. So yeah, to make a long story short, for EasyJet and Ryanair, Wissair not to have deployed any sort of meaningful loyalty initiative. I'm surprised that you know the shareholders haven't sort of raised the alarm and said, "Well, guys, what are you doing?" Because if you if you were to extrapolate the numbers that we have in our report against sort of you know the, the number of passengers they carry, the GDP per capita in the markets that they operate in. Um, the RPKs they produce, I can I, I can tell you already without doing the math, you're going to get to a huge program with a very very high valuation. So, yeah, it's like I said. I think the reason is it is a mindset of loyalty is for legacy. Plus, you know, we're so focused and so uh, laser focused on costs. We don't want any incremental cost on our uh, cost per you know flown mile. I think those are um, sort of uh, very myopic views on, on what the business could do for them. And I, I think it will change. It will come. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As you said, historically, you know, the airlines just had all the glory, all the power, all the visibility. And if the annual reports aren't even recognizing some stunning figures, in fact, I pulled out Everett um, from, again, some of your reports, uh, because what I liked you talked about is um, the the more open information that's coming through now that these new um, debt financing structures are, are coming through since the pandemic. And one figure you quoted was that United revealed in 2019, an EBITDA of 1.8 billion US dollars, um, which was 34% of the group EBITDA margin. I just think that was extraordinary. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, again, we seem to be on the cusp of a, of a new era in the sense that the programs or the airlines are uh, offering a greater degree of um, disclosure around the performance of their programs, um, which is really a catalyst of what's happening in the market. Others are doing it. So it is it is, it's generating this sort of aha moment or uh, what about me um, uh, realization with other st- uh, stakeholders in the industry. And, and, and yeah, you know, those, those sort of level of profit margins around, you know, if you look at, if we just look at the program, uh, a typical profit margin of a program is, let's say, between 25 and 30% of, of, the, of the revenues, which, you know, exceeds any profit margin of an airline typically. So, you're, there's this beautiful asset that's sitting there that is consistently and materially profitable. Um, yeah, I think the airlines will start to talk about it more and more. I think historically they were reluctant for a couple of different reasons. I think one of them is that if you present it overall, meaning you mix the airline with the loyalty program, you can, well, I wouldn't say sweep it under the rug, but if the airline is underperforming, and you add in the, the loyalty program, it looks a little bit better. I think in reality, though, I think the, the investors and the analysts, they know how much the airline is, is producing. So yeah. I don't think you're sort of, you know, you, you, you can't... You're not disguising put, it. Yeah. No, exactly, exactly. It is what it is, ultimately, at the end yeah. of the day. So you're leaving yeah. money on the table. It's, it's actually an interesting example in that context is there were two airlines in Brazil that IPO'd their program. Um, Tom IPO'd Multiplus and uh, Goal IPO'd at least part of its Smiles program. I will not go into the technical details, but if you look at the market cap of those two airlines, pre and post IPO, sort of historical wisdom would say, or your, intu- your intuition would say, well, if you take a part of the airline out and you list that separately, then clearly that must reflect on the market cap of the airline. So you would expect it to go down, right? And in reality, what happens on the day they IPO those businesses, if you look at the accurate, accurate the, the airline market cap stays the same. And the same is it's volatile. It goes up and down, up and down, up and down. The market cap of the loyalty program is incremental value on top of the airline market cap. In other words, it is you're not taking something out. You're getting a you're getting a bonus on top of the existing market cap. So that sort of supports the notion that the market looks at the airline, and that's a highly volatile business. It's driven by these big macroeconomic factors that you can't really control, right? You can't control, like nobody can control the price of fuel or overall economic uh, growth numbers. Whereas the loyalty program, you can actually control and you can run a, a stable business with that. So, yeah. So that goes back to the earlier point. Why didn't they disclose it? Because they, they, they think it will have a negative impact. Whereas in reality, there's actually a positive impact if you show that you know you're developing this business. I also think that showing the market that you are 
you know, if you say, look at our program, we're investing in it, we're developing new capabilities, we're, you know, actively driving the customer value proposition, our breakage is really low. All those messages, they're good for the airline, they're good for uh, the program, and they're good for program partners because they look at the program and they look at the airline and they say, wow, look at them. They're actually, you know, investing in the business rather than just sending a bill every month for the miles or the points that you buy of that. It's, it really it underscores how seriously you take the business as, as a segment and you're investing in it. And I think that's that's very positive. Indeed. And you made the point to me before, Everett, as well, that um, there seems to be um, an increasingly shift to uh, splitting out the operations of the loyalty program. I think IAG have done that, for example, to allow them, I suppose, the freedom and the, you know, the cultural approach to running the loyalty program, which has to be very different to to the, the mindset of an airline executive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I think what we've seen is this trend in the industry where there is a realization that loyalty business is you know, fundamentally different from the core airline business. So in order to give it a greater degree of, um, of velocity or a higher degree of agility, just to give you a simple example, I can I've seen so many airlines where the loyalty program department wants to do something, but the response is, and particularly in IT, the response is, yes, you're on the, on the list, but we have other things we need to attend to first because in an airline, it's all about you know, operational integrity and safety and meeting standards and uh, reliability. So you can come with a business case and, and say, if you can make this uh, change request, it is immediately yield accretive. It makes total sense for everybody. And the, and the answer will, will simply be, sorry, but we don't have the resources for it right now. So. If you take that and you do that times a thousand, then you basically have a business case to say, okay, the business, the loyalty business is so different. Let's put it in a separate structure because it can move faster. But also that separation provides this level of clarity around KPIs, accountability, because when the loyalty program sits within the airline um, and it sort of relies on you know informal agreements or gentleman agreements between the loyalty program and revenue management, it's all on a sort of best endeavors basis. You can't really run a business like that because people will come and go, you will lose, lose knowledge, nobody will know what is exactly the KPI. So shift it to a separate structure, it will give accountability and transparency. And at the same time, it will, it will allow it to develop faster. And in some cases also, you know, attract different talents because you know, there, there's, it's maybe hard, hard to believe, but there's people out there that say, I, would, I don't want to work for an airline, but I want to work for, you know, mm. an up and coming, exciting startup, yeah. digital business. Yeah, yeah. data company. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So there's that advantage as well. Mm-hmm. And then on top of it, of course, is it sort of, if you do separate it, then you can do, you can do, you can start to do, if you want, segmental reporting. Mm. If, if the airline decides, yes, we want to tell everybody this is a program, um, there's revenues and now we're growing it and now we're investing in it, you need to have yeah. a separate structure for that. So, yeah. And you're right. A lot of companies yeah. are going down this path. IAG is one example. Mm. Another one, uh, you mm-hmm. know, Lufthansa. So, number one and two in Europe have followed wow. this path. But also in okay. Asia, for example, A&A, separate structure, Qantas, mm. separate business unit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think it's 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 something that we uh, we we will see more and more of in the industry as well. 
Wonderful. They're great examples, Everett. And because I've always been more on the, um, let's say, the the product or or communication side of of any loyalty programs, to me, again, my inherent frustration um, was always competing for communications capacity. So when you're part of a big company and, you know, they want to talk about the the next sale or the next next discount. So, and this is very much, I believe, prevalent in, in airlines as well. You know, the communications capacity is driven by commercial um, and they don't see the, the loyalty communications as a priority. Um, so I think what you're talking about in terms of this new structure, again, just gives that relationship building capacity that before might have been confused, again, with your previous example of, you know, here's the next airline sale. Yeah, exactly. I think to, I think that, you know, that structure kind of helps to address some of the issues. I also think that, you know, some of it will remain because Ultimately, there is a finite, uh, you know, amount of attention span or yeah. share of yeah, mind true. that a consumer has. So yeah. even though if you were to run a separate program, then there, I think to some degree mm. there will always be a conflict, or maybe not a conflict. There will be a limit to how much messaging mm. you can do. Um, mm. I do think that you know loyalty programs they are because the way they're set up with all the data that they have, they can mm. they're intrinsically better. Uh, structured to deliver on, you know, very, you know, high precision marketing using the data uh, yeah. from their own resources and from partners as well. Complex mm-hmm. campaign management systems that do continuous, you know, testing and upgrading of messaging. Um, yeah. So yeah, that that definitely helps. Wonderful. And I think my final question for you then, Everett, um, I did an episode recently about the media value of loyalty programs. And there were some extraordinary case studies being quoted by mainly financial services where, for example, a Solus email by a brand like American Express on behalf of a partner was valued at about a quarter of a million dollars. So is this something that you're seeing is being factored into uh, the valuations of the, let's say, more advanced loyalty programs at the moment or is that still something that um, that could be developed further or, or or what's your view on that whole piece? I think that's probably an area that could be developed further. Um, I don't think it features as strongly in the current sort of valuation approaches. Um, mm. Although, like you say, it can be material. The, the yeah. one thing I would put a caveat on though is that I we, we, we see a lot of sort of messaging in the market two loyalty programs saying, you know, data monetization is the way forward. Um, You're going to get huge value from that. And that I would be a little bit more reluctant to sort of uh, immediately embrace because at the the end of the day, you know, you're competing in a landscape with extremely large and, and sophisticated players like Google and Apple and Facebook. So to think that you can sort of, you know, Yes, you have a lot of data, uh, but it doesn't mean that, you know, data monetization is necessarily a a given. Um, But yeah, I think, you know, the the example that you give of American Express with a partner offer, yeah, of course, they they very smartly leverage the brand, the halo effect of the brand, and there's a lot of value in that. And I think that's what the successful programs do. They take the brand of the airline. And basically leverage that to to upsell and and you know widen the the scope of or the sphere of influence of the program, and that seems to work quite well. 
Mm, absolutely. Yeah. I think there's a lot more to come on that one, Everett. So I think we should uh, definitely just, keep, you know, obviously keep an eye on it. I know you're laser focused on this uh, segment. Is there any other, I suppose, um, vertical, Everett, that you think can follow the phenomenal success in terms of, you know, splitting out the, the loyalty programs and leveraging them as an asset? Um, you know, I don't know whether hotels are following this direction or do you see it happening elsewhere? Yeah, I do think that there is a number of sectors that could um, benefit from applying some of the same um, uh, philosophies. Uh, at the same time, I think that airline loyalty programs, they really sit in the sweet spot when it comes to this sort of, you know, value optimization. Uh, and that's really, and that's for two reasons predominantly. The first reason is that airline or airline loyalty programs, there is a big delta between um, the perceived value and the actual value of the reward. In other words, if you redeem for a ticket from Dubai to London, um, that represents real value. Um, for the airline or the program, it, you know, the cost of, of giving you that ticket could actually be very low. So that is very attractive to play with. The economics of that are very attractive in a multi-program. That's one. The second factor is... Um, what we talked about earlier, the you know the, the 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 intrinsic financial performance of the airline industry is is it's 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 on the lower side, and I, I put it um, very cautiously. It means that if you run the loyalty program as a business, there is a huge sort of gap between your you know the core business and that of the loyalty program. So if you take those two factors and you look at other industries, they're not present to that same extent. So. If you if you go to other industries, for example, the, the nature of the rewards is less attractive. So the member or the consumer would look at it and say, "Well, you know, if I if I run big pharma, well, maybe it's a bad example now because it's very attractive." If you have a good, <laughs> We're highly normally, motivated, right there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 But you know what I mean. But right? you're it's, right. Yeah. It's, it's the gross, the supermarket doesn't have the same level of um, I, I don't know whether it's you know or attractiveness. exactly. Exactly. So that's one thing. And also, you know, the supermarket or the hotel company or the financial services institution, their financial performance would typically be okay. would be, you know, in some cases it would be very good. So there's less of an incentive to sort of run the loyalty program as a standalone. I do think that, you know, the, the, these companies can benefit. I think it's in nobody's interest to have a loyalty program that's hidden in the organization somewhere without clear KPIs that's sort of doing it, everything on a best efforts basis, not, not really getting recognized. That's good for no one. That's absolutely clear. So that I think the airlines or the other industries rather can, can learn some, some, some uh, lessons from the airlines for sure. Mm. Wonderful. My goodness, Everett, I have learned loads uh, in the last, uh, whatever, half an hour, 40 minutes talking to you. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention before we wrap up? No, I think, well, we covered a lot, hopefully. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I think, you know, the, the, the main message really is that these programs there are very important, traditionally has punched below their weight. I think it's slowly starting to shift and I think that's good for everyone. So, yeah, I, I think the industry will uh, continue to evolve and uh, and hopefully these programs will continue to play their part in delivering real results for, mm-hmm. uh, for their constituents. Yeah. 
Wonderful. Yeah. No, as we all say, I mean, the pandemic is devastating. Um, it's, it's you know, really, really um, been a big issue, but there are some silver linings. So it's um, extraordinary to have conversations like this. So listen, thank you for bringing our attention to all of those incredible insights. Everett DeBoer, Managing Partner at On Point Loyalty. Thank you so much from Let's Talk Loyalty. This show is sponsored by The Wise Marketeer, the world's most popular source of loyalty marketing news, insights, and research. The Wise Marketeer also offers loyalty marketing training through its Loyalty Academy, which has already certified over 170 executives in 20 countries as certified loyalty marketing professionals. For more information, check out thewisemarketeer.com and loyaltyacademy.org. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Loyalty. If you'd like me to send you the latest show each week, simply sign up for the show newsletter on letstalkloyalty.com and I'll send you the latest episode to your inbox every Thursday. Or just head to your favorite podcast platform, find Let's Talk Loyalty and subscribe. Of course, I'd love your feedback and reviews and thanks again for supporting the show. Listener.